I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, a monthly roundtable podcast where the three brothers behind Three Brothers Film chat about a chosen movie and any other topics about film and film culture that come our way. I'm Aaron Bergstrom, here with my brothers. Anders. It's Anton. My last name is the same as my brother's. And this month we're chatting about Mank, David Fincher's new biopic about Herman J. Mankiewicz, which just hit Netflix a few weeks ago. Now, before we dive into a discussion about Mank, we want to set the groundwork for what we hope this podcast will become. We all grew up loving movies, and over the years, our relationship to the movies has deepened and changed. In 2011, we started Three Brothers Film as an outlet to share our film writing with the world. We all believe that understanding a movie involves more than just watching it. It also involves reading about it, writing about it, and even talking about it. Understanding film is a dialogue. We're talking and we hope you'll join the conversation. Now to this month's roundtable about Mank. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz. New York playwright and drama critic turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. Mank is the passion project for director David Fincher. Working from a script written by his late father, the film tells the story of Herman J. Mankowitz, played by Gary Oldman in the film the alcoholic screenwriter behind Citizen Kane. In a homage to Citizen Kane, the film jumps back and forth between 1940, when Mankiewicz is writing the first draft of Kane holed up in a secluded desert hotel after breaking his leg, and the early 1930s, when Mankiewicz was acquainted with William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies, who inspired key figures in the script. Now, if you've read any reviews over the past month or logged on to film Twitter during this period, you probably have seen that the discussion around Mank falls into two camps. It's either a beautifully produced love letter to old Hollywood, celebrating a screenwriter that we've mostly forgotten in the modern day, or it's a missive aimed directly at the myth of Orson Welles as an artistic genius, arguing that the once-called greatest film of all time would be nothing without Mankiewicz's artistic input. So my opening question to you guys, to get this all started, is, what is Mank? Is it a love letter, or is it a missive? Anders? I'm not sure that it is either of those things, at least in terms of its actual effect. As a whole love letter to old Hollywood, I, there are certain things about Mank that I really enjoyed, particularly uh, Metterschmidt's cinematography in black and white is pretty evocative of the beauty of Greg Tolan's in some instances. Um, and it definitely at times leans really strongly into the screwball dialogue, but there's also some things we can talk about in terms of how it falls short. For anyone like myself who's fairly immersed in film history, there's going to be things that rankle me about it, and they do. And then in terms of a missive aimed at Orson Welles, I don't think it successfully does the job. If it's a hit job on Welles, it misses its mark. Anton? Yeah, like I think it's... I often think that movies about Hollywood they tend to either skew into that um, investigation of the underbelly of sort of Hollywood or they're that like sort of a celebration of the magic of the movies. Um, 
and in this case, I think that Mank is, you know, it's, it's, I think it's both of those things. And I feel like the, the critical dialogue right, right now around Mank is sort of like pigeonholing this film because it's doing a lot of different things. Like, I think it's definitely uncovering, like, unsavory aspects of Hollywood in this time period. Um, but there's definitely an aspect of, as Anders noted, like, you know, the way it's uh, shooting, the way it, it, you know, it clearly has affection for the movies of this time period and it, how it's made uh, it demonstrates that. But then I also think, you know, it's also a bit of a, a making of movie. It's a bit of a biopic. So it, it's it's doing a few different things, wearing a few different hats. I think that kind of gets at it. It's, it's kind of doing an awful lot of things. And therefore, I'm not sure it does any one of those things well. It's even a little bit of one of those, like, you know, there's like there's even at times it's one of those Shakespeare and love writer movies where um, lines of dialogue or, you know, things from real life are always have to inspire everything that goes into the product. And I thought it was interesting how much like I didn't I, I don't think I was previously aware how much, you know, Mankiewicz was drawing on his own relationship with Hearst, uh, Marion Davies. But I also feel like the movie's very interested in sort of like Kane as about Mankiewicz's life when we've often gotten the idea that you know like Wells was actually investing a lot of his life not just hers but also his life into Citizen Kane. So I think one of the interesting things about Mank about the fact that it kind of comes off as both like impeccably crafted but it doesn't seem unified it seems like it's the work of Mm. multiple artists which is kind of weird in a movie by David Fincher who's kind of known to be the most obsessive modern director who has a large following and i think a lot of this comes down to the script and the fact that it's based off a script by his father who died in the 90s and then retouched by fincher and then retouched by eric roth so you actually get a touch of all these guys in there you get the david fincher kind of i'm gonna peel away the rod of something that's very appealing you get his father's work which sounds like it was very much a Pauline Kael inspired kind of direct missive. I think Mankiewicz is great. Wells is not nearly as good. And I'm going to try and take it down. And from what I've read about this movie, the actual revisions on the script paired that back. And I assume kind of cut Wells out of the project itself. But then it also has a bit of that Eric Roth accidental man of history thing of the idea Mm. of the almost bumbling fool who walks his way through important historical events, influencing them like Forrest Gump or Benjamin Button. Do we know like what, um, the history of this script is like apart from the fact that Fincher's dad wrote this screenplay and Fincher wanted to do it, and then Fincher did, he, did he go and alter it afterwards, or is it largely faithful to? Work? So he was actually so it's it is edited pretty heavily. He was yeah. initially actually going to film this script after making the game, and he was going to film it, I believe, with Jodie Foster and Kevin Spacey. Yeah, Spacey as Mankiewicz. Spacey as Mankiewicz, wow. And that never came together, so he kind of shelved it, but he'd been trying to make... It's it's a passion project because it's literally something he's wanted to make. But I think because it's his father, he's a little bit precious, perhaps, about elements of it that don't work. Because, as you said, Anders, if you actually know the history, it's fabricated, much of this. That is not how Citizen Kane was written. So it's like, if you want to take this as history... It falls apart. But the question is, I don't know if Fincher wants us to, you know, it's it's a precarious situation to try and think any movie is history. It definitely is. But is this one even trying to be? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. But I guess for me, the issue is that he, there's this double mindedness, as you say, about it. And it's at the same time that you have Fincher, the obsessive 
you know, there's things that you're like, if you're that obsessive, how do you miss little things? Like you're going to go to all this work of having this like, you know, deep focus, black and white photography, and then you shoot it in widescreen instead of Academy. You, uh, you know, you, was that a Netflix you, issue? Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's just strange. Right. Like, but then you decide to like, but do mono have, with yeah. not full. Yeah. Name. I actually love the mono. That's maybe my favorite thing with the entire movie. We could yeah. talk about that later is the score and the sound design. But then there's even little like things that they get wrong, like historical details in terms so of what are the, some of those? Just one to, of them. Here's an example in the, uh, when Mank first goes, uh, when his brother shows up in Hollywood and letterer, they show up after getting the yep. letter saying, come to Hollywood, you know, there's, they're all suckers. And they have the meeting with Thalberg and Mayer, right? Uh, and they're talking, to, they're supposed to do the pitch. And yep. they're going to pitch this, like, and they're talk, talking about a Universal Monsters thing, which at that time, there was none, neither Frankenstein nor the Wolfman had come out at that year. Mm. Like, so it's like little details like that, right? Or like, I mean, you there's also some question of whether it's revising Mankiewicz, and we can talk about the politics of the movie uh, maybe a bit in a moment. But uh, to what degree Mankiewicz was involved actually in uh, the you know pro labor, the screenwriters guild. He actually opposed the screenwriters guild. Did they do they like what was um? Did he? Do we know that he wrote the script like in the the conditions of the movie? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's just that Wells would actually make visits to the the hotel where he was mm. stayed, would write it with him at points. It was a giant initial draft and everything, but it, there gotcha. was no kind of, you do it all your own, and then I'll show up at the end, and then yeah. confrontation. Yeah. Like, that's entirely dramatized. I kind of get that. Anders, yeah. you, you brought up the questionable uh, decision to make it widescreen, even though it's trying to ape all this old style. And it kind of, you know, it gets the mono perfectly. It gets the little cigarette burns in the corner it gets that in some shots such as when uh, mank first meets marion davies on the set that deep focus where you see all the people moving around the film set and there's that great kind of shot of him walking up the back of her set which is a, a spire where she's gonna be burned higher, at the, yeah. yeah burned <laughs> at the stake and it's just like really nice blocking there's different parallels going on there but the deep focus allows so many different layers in the frame so like that's the kind of stuff that wells did so famously in Kane and other movies. And that wouldn't have been in Mankiewicz's script. <laughs> no, definitely not. Do you think the other thing about the double-mindedness, what I just find interesting is that, because you've already mentioned that this doesn't feel like a Fincher movie, you know, from what we expect. Partly, you know, it's the look, the fact that he's doing this, like, stylized period piece. Um, but, but there is something about the fact that, like, I don't know if it's it's because of his father's script, but like it, like you know, uh, like I I was after watching it, I was almost surprised that this was a movie by David Fincher in a way that I'm not by even watching the first episodes of Mindhunter. Yeah, absolutely. Or House of Cards. Yeah. Or even some of his music videos. It has. It doesn't have, I think, the clinical detachment which we've known from him in these past. Mm three films, yeah. which is kind of weird that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are doing the score for this one too, which it's such a bouncy kind of lively score. It has none of that underlying dread that we know their stuff. It, obviously no synth in there, no real ambient noises, pure like kind of old Hollywood orchestra, big band style stuff. And I actually really enjoyed that. And I think that and the mono sound and just the pitter patter of the dialogue does create an atmosphere very well. 
But again, what is Fincher bringing to this work? Because from reading stuff, apparently he still did his classic 200 takes. Yeah, in the final scene, yeah. But then he would require people to act like they do in old movies where the 200 takes would be anathema to that. So he would be like, okay, Gary, you're going to show up and you've got a, you know, no affect in your dialogue. You're going to walk over there, you know, say it quickly, say it flat. Don't hit any furniture when you walk out, but we're going to do that 200 times. And it's like, I just, I don't see how those two approaches work. Yeah, we could maybe talk about the performances in a moment, but it's interesting. Something that just came to me is that in some weird way, the film as a debate or you know discussion of auteur theory when in many ways fincher is even compared with a lot of the other big directors of the last 20 years 25 years is an auteur in the sense that he doesn't usually write his own scripts he he brings his own you know sense of style to something that maybe had its origin in somebody else's project and things like that which is really the classic understanding of auteur theory right it's not the writer director idea it's the guys like ford and hawks who could so the the classical hollywood auteur yeah. not the not the new hollywood exactly of that which wells is sort of the precursor to the new hollywood auteur right like and this is the love letter to that old collaborative kind of thing right which is kind of interesting because then the film itself is kind of that it's collaboration with this dead father and and roth and other people and obviously the performers and all that. So it is an interesting uh, case study of auteurism these days. And the fact that Netflix was willing to fund this, you know, passion project. Well, and even the fact that we feel that like back to the, you know, back to the Mankiewicz Wells sort of debate, the fact that we even feel like we have to make a choice about who's really, you know, behind the script. Obviously, obviously, you know, like to some degree, like obviously both of them, are pretty important in this. You mentioned the performances. So like right off the bat, I, I admire Gary Oldman as an actor in many movies. I like sometimes when he goes a bit bonkers, like fifth element Element. or something. Yes. Darkest hour. And he's like, but then there's things like the dark Knight. I haven't actually seen darkest hour. Um, things like the dark Knight, like the Harry Potter series or Tinker Tailor soldier spy, those kind of anything where he gets to play a bit of costume, He's very dependable. Yeah, and he's kind of muted, too. My right? issue here is he's, like, 30 years too old. <laughs> oh, man, he looks... I mean, I guess you could say chalk it up to manic alcoholism, but seriously. I know like, when he dies, they're like... like <laughs> my wife was like... <laughs> it's like, what? He's 55? <laughs> You're like, so what, he was, like, in his 40s earlier for most of the He movie? was, he was 43, if not like, 30. Oh, man, supposed that, to be that in the alcoholism season, right? has really, really destroyed him. But I guess there's also that aspect, right? Like, I, I looked at a picture of Mankiewicz, and he did look aged. But, like, the scene where he introduces it when his brother Joe, who became the famous director, shows up, played by Tom, I think, Pelfrey is the name. And the actor's, like, 35 years younger than Gary Oldman or something. And you can you can tell, I'm like, is this not your son? And, like, I understand <laughs> that that kind of casting choice actually speaks to an old Hollywood thing. You know, it's the thing every year when you watch at Christmas, it's a wonderful life. And you're like, why is Jimmy Stewart pretending to be 17 at one point in this movie? <laughs> why is 25 year old Orson Welles playing Kane from age 19 to old age? Right. So it's true. But just in a, it's funny actually mentioning Wells because the actor that I couldn't help, but think would have served better as the kind of early middle aged lush is the actor who plays Wells in this Tom Burke. If you guys saw the the souvenir last year, he played a 
a heroin addict and he's just a complete mess in it, but he's got that kind of bedraggled, quick-witted, I just like schlep myself over here, but my wit's still quicker than everybody else. And I just don't get that from Gary Oldman necessarily as a performer. No. Did you find him as good as Wells? I think it's okay, but I don't think it's a great Wells. It, it, he's not Maurice LaMarche. The voice is good. <laughs> yeah. Like when he's on the phone, he's better. Yeah. When, person, when it's on the phone, I, I thought it's a bit almost Wells. Like he gets the voice really well. Better than, say, the uh, the Liv Schreiber. Like, um, oh, yeah, the RKO. RKO. Uh, like, you know, he doesn't, yeah. even though he has that. Uh, you know, aspects of the transatlantic accent. He never, I feel like he doesn't sell the physicality. Do you think that is partially a result of the filmmaking choices? Because his kind of grand entrance at the end of the film, when you finally get him in person, you get to finally get a full scene with him. It The film actually takes a very conventional approach to shooting the big bad it's all from low he's all backlit his goatee and his kind of the way his hair and his cape he looks like a movie villain like and it's just like it's kind of funny in the moment because it's like here's the boy wonder himself finally he's got a cape and it's almost like he's a superhero but there's there is something jarring and ultimately seems like slightly false it's i almost wish they just kept him off screen the whole film and just had the voice i agree the other guy that i think is a short change just is Houseman, because I was just reading the Carringer, Robert Carringer's 1978 uh, essay on the scripts of Citizen Kane, which kind of came out in response to Pauline Kael and Peter Bogdanovich. And I think Houseman had worked with Wells quite a bit at the Mercury Theater and had scripted a lot of the stuff with him. And from what it seems is that he gave a lot of notes and was there at Victorville with Mank. So, so he wasn't just there to it, pester him. He was no, actually involved exactly. in the and, script. He, and the guy who plays him, you know, I think other people have said this, like, seems like a little bit like, oh, you know, Mank, you got to do this thing. And it's like, no, Houseman was like actually like one of Wells' like sturdiest collaborators and like would have been there to be like. So he's partly like an in-house like Mercury Theater guy there. Yeah. Because, you know, because Mank wasn't part of that. Um, interesting. I also, but back to, just quickly back to the point of, um, the way Wells enters in this film. Something for it is the fact that it kind of embodies this whole dynamic that I remember Wells talking about, where you get, you like suspend the certain character and we spend the whole movie talking about him. We really only see him in that weird, um, some critics have described as sort of, you know, expressionistic when he comes in, when he's in the hospital and he sort of comes mm-hmm. in as the shadow. Um, and he only shows up later, but it's it's interesting to make Wells this sort of embodiment of one of one of Wells's own sort of ideas for how you build up a star. You actually don't have them at the start of the film, and yeah. you just keep having everyone talk about oh this Wells, this Wells, this guy. And he talked, and like people said, like you know that's what they do with Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, right? You build up the legend by talking about him constantly without him being present, and then you arrive at him. But you, but the problem is the difference, right? Is that it doesn't it doesn't deliver when we actually get to that scene. It's funny that you mentioned Kurtz though, because in the actual history, Wells and in was the movie, yep. yeah, he's trying to make a Heart of Darkness movie where he would play both Kurtz, yeah, and um, Marlowe, and so like that kind of approach is appropriate. It is the kind of subtle thing that somebody won't immediately recognize that kind of approach to storytelling that like Fincher is clearly I'd assume thought and worked in there. So like, I don't want to shortchange 
Fincher or even the movie in general in just the sense of like, it seems to be a movie divided against itself. It seems to be a movie interested in a lot of things that I think are interesting, even if it doesn't follow those through to the a degree that I would prefer. But it's not like an unenjoyable movie to watch. It's not like it doesn't have good performances. I yeah. think at Oldman is one of the weaker points, but I really enjoyed like the other performers in it. I thought Charles Dance as William Randall first is like a great bit of leveraging his his gravitas that he's accrued from the you know Game of Thrones and the Crown and various things over the past years, and just kind of having a guy like him in there with that just immediate presence. You just you get Can it. Can I compare <laughs> Dance like? Having um, dance and even um, um, Marion Davies, my my goodness, Amanda Seyfried. Yeah, their casting works a lot better than the Bogdanovich, I felt, in the sense that like Hurst having like Charles Dance be Hurst gives this sense that like this is actually someone who's done a lot of stuff. He doesn't come across as just sort of this. Um, you know, like this old fool. No, it's not one dimensional. It actually gives Hurst his due. He actually seems like he's pretty But I think sharp the casting's and... really important for that. Like, I think he really, that was a good choice. And Marion, like, you know, um, Kirsten Dunst's Marion Davies didn't really, is it maybe a little bit, I, I don't know. I, I feel will, like there's more depth to this performance. Yes. Um, I, I, this is what I will say. I think maybe the writing. Marion Davies, as performed in this film by Amanda Seyfried, is very good. Yeah. I think that there's certain things about Kristen Dunst and the Cat's Meow by Bogdanovich that she captures more of that 1920s, 30s Hollywood feel. Like, there are yeah. moments when some of the casting of, like, both uh, Seyfried, who I, I, I like her in most things, like, you know, First Reformed and stuff. She's very good. She's good here. Um, having Lily Collins as uh, Ms. Alexander, his, and you know, secretary. Again, she doesn't feel like she fits in the 19. 19- 30s or 41. My, under, my understanding is that she's right. She's a real person. Yeah, she is. She was. But his. Speaking of a connection to another Gary Oldman, and so in Darkest Hour, they add this this typist for Churchill as like you know the narrative crutch to like have your like outsider who comes into the world so that we can explain things and get to know uh, Churchill through like you know this sort of audience surrogate. And I felt, even though this, this character was real, the Lily Collins, Mrs. Alexander, like, she, uh, to me, she was, like, the weakest part of the whole movie. And, the, like, her ending was she's like, oh, my husband's alive. Like, I just did not. I was like, why is this in this movie? The, Absolutely. I was like, this isn't a Fincher thing to do. <laughs> and the, and, the, and he, the German, uh, you know, woman that he's like, oh, yeah. Max saved an entire village of Germans. Which apparently he did, but... It's very strange, though, because it the, the movie tiptoes around the politics. So, like, we should probably just get into the politics stuff now. So, like, how much the movie... The movie and the actual creation of the script seems to hinge on this idea that Mank betrays his friendship with Hearst and Davies to make Susan Cain. By being brutally honest, that's part of the artistry. I don't quite get that from this presentation of it because the relationship always seems an acquaintanceship and never seems something more so i don't see how there can be betrayal in that the thing that i find more interesting and i wish the movie did more of is the way it gestures at him getting back at hearst for the sinclair for you know the the way that mgm manipulates Mm -hmm. the upton sinclair election and makes him lose and kind of posits it as this kind of he has this latent east coast 
pseudo leftist by um, like anger that he can't talk about in conservative Hollywood. He can't actually act upon. So the only way he can express it is artistically. Yeah. Did you guys catch who plays Upton Sinclair? It was so weird. Bill Nye. I was like, Bill I Nye did the not know guy. that the first time I watched it, and then I saw it in the credits, and I was like, "What?" Because you only see him in that one scene from the yeah. back, like doing giving the speed the rally at outside the. Yeah. Is there a physical resemblance or something that I'm missing? I don't know. One thing I just found was, but like I almost, I don't know if I entirely agree. Like I, particularly on rewatching aspects of it, um, like I had got about through two-thirds of it a second time. I did actually, like, there's that whole nighttime walk scene that does spend quite a bit of time. Mm-hmm. And the way the, there's a scene later on where the wife, um, Minkwitz's wife mentions that she's like, I'm, I'm sick of your, like, platonic affairs that I sort of look the other way. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. So I did feel like there was, but I don't know if it, I don't know if I buy the betrayal sense because they even seem very amicable even after the fact. Like, they have that picnic and she's like, oh, don't worry, it's okay. You know, so, like, the way the nephew responds doesn't seem believable versus how Marion does. The, it's the reason why I say that is that the movie scene doesn't seem to want to pick which is the deciding factor. Is it, like, is it the betrayal mm. that's the the emotional crux of the film or is it the feeling slighted by the MGM manipulation of the election, because I feel like the scene that is the most emotionally resonant or the, the one that it's, it's trying to play its hand the hardest is when his friend commits suicide Yeah, Mm -hmm. and he tries to save him. And I'm like, I know that's a fabrication in the movie. That guy did not kill himself. That guy didn't exist. Apparently. Well, he's a version of somebody else who did shoot those things, who was kind of a a bit player who got a chance to direct some stuff. Yeah. But doesn't that set up, the guy who should be the real villain should be leaving there. But isn't he already? He kind of is, but like, and that's the thing. Hearst, does Hearst, I mean, yes, he looks after his own interests as a wealthy dude, but Hearst, like Kane, was hard to pin down on what yeah. exactly his sympathies are, right? This movie does a good job of bringing up that aspect of like the, the sort of the arc of Hearst, that he was... Pro-labor, he, yeah. He was a at least not like a figure of the status quo during his rise, right? He was right. like someone shaking things up. But like but like Kane, there's yeah. this settling into, you know, sort of the fantasy land. San Simeon, Xanadu. I do actually really appreciate that first scene that introduces Mayor, where he's going to tell the news that they're all... Yeah, that's a really good scene. Into that's it. a really it's good so scene. It's so well framed, the, that shot of him, he's small on the left of it and it's the really wide shot and you have the smoke coming in from the back of the theater and all the bit players in their costumes it's the it's that is the kind of stuff that even though this movie doesn't quite work i'm quite mixed on it moments like that make me want to rewatch it right now kind of just for that the walking down the hallway with mayor is also a good scene Mm -hmm. and then right into him going in and then giving that like fake like oh we need you to cut your salaries by half it just shows how everything is a manipulation, even within the working environment in Hollywood. It's always putting on a smoke show. You're constantly kind of inventing this story that you're going to sell to everybody, and you have to sell yeah. some kind of artistry for everybody to buy in. And, and to me, one of the best lines in the movie is also Mayer's reflection on movies, where he's like, movies are you know, something where you sell it, and you know, all they get to take is a memory, and we just keep... The real thing. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movie. I'm like, 
That's great. That's that's great. Is that one of that's the, a good line? That's one of those moments that like there were some things, especially with some of the political stuff, but also some of the the movie industry lines where I was like, they they resonate very heavily with right now, and I thought there was it was quite interesting. Well, even the little fake news stuff of like the fake segments. Yeah, it just shows that nothing new under the sun, though. It's true. <laughs> I also really appreciated the li- there's a few lines in there that work very nicely and I assume they're holdovers from uh Fincher's father's script the one where it's Mankiewicz talking about like you know a 2 hour movie cannot capture the truth of a person's life all it can do is give it leave the impression of one you cannot capture a man's entire life in 2 hours all you can hope is to leave the impression of one I kind of wrote a review the other day about how you, the Tesla review it's like don't even try. <laughs> but here's the question. I guess, does Mank even leave an impression? <laughs> so what is, can we, can I just ask you guys straight out? Like, so we've been kind of tiptoeing around it, but like, so what's your, what's your overall verdict of this movie? Just so we're, you know, it's fine. clear for, fine. You're, so you're sort of a. It's a fine movie. I give it a slight thumbs up, but. Um, probably like a six it's, out of ten. It's a disappointment because it's Fincher and it's because of both mm. Citizen Kane. Yeah. How about you? Weirdly, I might li- I might like it more than you guys then, even though I almost felt like going into it, you know, we were sort of holding our cards back a bit, but I I kind of actually thought you guys would like it more than me, um, but maybe I actually like it a bit more. But you like classical style probably a little bit more than us. I do, I do really like the style. Um, the fairy, like, honestly, like, uh, re-watching parts of it did make me appreciate it more. The first time I watched it, I did find it quite probably purposely confusing um a little bit in terms of like who everyone is until you understand um and it's it's interesting to compare it's trying to do a little bit of the narrative confusion of say like right citizen kane but it's interesting where we have to put like the crutches in there nowadays versus where it allows there to be like ambiguity like it it adds the you know it tells us what the date is with those little like right the scene headings and stuff um but the other time, you know, Citizen Kane's very, the fact that it returns to certain characters is very clear who everyone is, I find. Um, but I also like, I also like the, there's something about the, the political side that I found really fascinating, and I wasn't expecting to find it in the movie. Yeah, like, I don't want to, I don't want to rag on the film. To be fair, this is a, this is a year with very few pleasures, and I kind of wish we could have seen this on the big screen because I could just imagine sitting at the Tiff Bell light box with the perfect projection and, and sound and just really enjoying it on a purely, like, aesthetic level of Absolutely. just a formally well-crafted movie. Even if I'm fairly, um, not disinterested because I like all the historical stuff, but I just, I never buy into any of the emotional arcs that I think it wants me to. Mm. Yeah, for me, it's it's very ambivalent in the sense, like, I end up having feeling middled about it, but not because it's, like, a middling movie, but rather that there's some things that I really like about it, and then there's some things that I find, like, tainted, and I really don't What like are some of the it. things that you really tainted for you? Like, for me, it's just the the fact that it doesn't... It, it wants to be about this great film, and it, it really ends up muddying the water rather than saying anything about it. And I actually... And I don't think Oldman's performance works ultimately and you know it's the the whole uh, that the line you referenced that you know a movie can't capture a man's life but it can you know try to offer an impression or whatever and i don't think we really get the full impression 
that like what is it ultimately saying i'm I'm not really sure it's torn in so many directions so that's an interesting point because i think so you know earlier we were talking about what kind of movie is this and so ultimately i think as a making of movie it doesn't work it 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 brings nothing of interest to or it reveals nothing new about Citizen Kane. If anything, you know, as you said, it muddies the water or, you know, it just kind of diminishes things and tries to reduce it into the product of Mank's relationship with people he knew or things like that. Um, as a, mo- a biopic, I like it more, partly because I think it's valuable is like, I honestly didn't know that much about Herman Mankiewicz and just seen him inhabit um, 1930s Hollywood, seen some of the overlap between, you know, the, uh, the governorship election in 1934, the politics of the Depression in the States, and how that interacts with Hollywood, I found quite fascinating. Um, so as a biopic, I'm more engaged in it. Um, and then, you know, when we get back to, like, what kind of a Hollywood movie is this? Is it a movie that celebrates Hollywood? Is it a movie that wants to rip Hollywood? I think it has some good elements of both, but it's sort of undecided about yeah. what it is. It's just, I guess, also then I have rewatched Citizen Kane this weekend to make sure, like, I'd been a while. And I was like, yeah, you know, Kane, for a movie that, you know, often gets tried it out it's like is it really as good as it 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 really is it really pulls off everything that you could have hoped it's it is a masterpiece it's hard to say like what if you're making a movie about making a movie about one of the greatest if not the greatest movie of all time like you're the challenge is like well what do you expect right like we've had a few other movies you know like the the rko 218 or whatever you know again they're sort of comes across as, as sl- it seems slight and it seems even more slight in comparison to the achievement of Citizen Kane. I, th- I mean, I think we could probably go on about various elements of this movie, but um, it's probably a movie that's never going to resolve clearly in one way or another, regardless of how much we dig into it, just because it doesn't seem to have made up its mind entirely what it is with relation to Kane, relation to Hollywood, or as a biopic. And I kind of agree with you just generally, Anton, that it, the closer the movie gets to just a biopic or an old like evocation of Hollywood, the more I like it. The less it's about Kane or Wells, the more I like it. I would agree. Because the, the thing with Kane and that kind of structure, maybe it's just because I watched it recently, but like something like Seed Max, The Killers, it does such a better job of capturing, like, we're just going to steal the structure of Orson Welles' Kane. And we're going to pay homage to that movie just by how well constructed and how well thought out this movie is. But we're going to use it for other purposes. And I just feel like that's that's how I like my artistic interrogations of, of legacies. It's through the, the art itself and not necessarily just putting it in a plot. Next up, we have The Current, where we briefly discuss some odds and ends in film discourse. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that there's not much of a film discourse except for the one within critics circles. So for the sake of, you know, it's going to be Christmas in a week and a bit. And by the time this comes out, probably maybe one week exactly. So without, instead of talking about whatever stuff is going to drop on streaming in the next week, we can briefly talk about some holiday movies we're watching. 
And I know there's some movies that we watch every year, but like, what what are you guys kind of seeking out in the next week and a half? Well, in addition to those, you know, Christmas liturgy movies that I watch every year, which are, I think, which are on Christmas Eve, I always watch the Brian Desmond Hurst, uh, Alistair Sim Christmas Carol, and then on Christmas Day, I always watch It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, but in terms of the lead up to Christmas, a couple of films I like to, I, they kind of have entered into my regular Christmas viewing, even though, you know, people love to try out that it's like, it's not, is it a Christmas movie? Is it not a Christmas movie kind of thing? Like, is a movie a Christmas movie if it's set at Christmas? Um, one is strange, well, maybe not so strange, Tim Burton's Batman Returns, which is a dark and twisted Christmas movie, but it. It really one of the things the reasons it works as a Christmas captures movie, the it, season for you. <laughs> it, it does well. It look. I mean, it it's a Wonderful Life and Christmas Carol play into the gothic elements of Christmas, ghosts mm. and you know the or the you know the bad decisions we make and the seeking redemption and all that. And I think just tonally, then Christmas actually works well just for the set decoration and everything, like the scene of like the you know the Gotham Christmas tree, you know things like that and. Yeah, I mean, sure it is, you know. Turning Penguin into it, like a Dickensian character, right? Yeah, he is, you know, like this, uh, you know, he's he's kind of a tragic figure also, you know. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. for a, while, a long time, you know, I, I kind of had been like, yeah, it's not a great Batman movie. And it isn't. But it's a really good Tim Burton movie. And it's a pretty uh, visually evocative Christmas movie. So maybe I'll write something about that for the, the site. And then the other one that is, I you know, my go-to movie, whether it's a... Our impending apocalypse uh, or the apocalyptic revelation of Christmas is uh, Children of Men. Um, I'm not sure if I can bring myself to watch it this year <laughs> with everything that's going on in the world, but maybe it's just the right thing, you know, to remind myself of the power of uh, a child on Christmas. Watching. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll single out partly because I talked about these, like, uh, you know, this sort of subgenre of making of movies. Um, so I watched The Invention of or sorry, the the man who invented Christmas, and it's this story about you know it's uh, Charles Dickens writing a Christmas Carol. It's not great, but it's good, and it's the kind of movie where like you know I'm not going to recommend it as adding it to your liturgy, if you will, for the season, or you know it's going to be not going to be like a regular occurrence. But for someone like me who is you know I've read I've read Dickens a Christmas Carol numerous times. Almost every year, maybe not every year anymore, I, I watch um, the Alistair Sim Christmas Carol. I've My boys watch the Muppets Christmas Carol on repeat. So, like, I know this story inside and out. And so the like success... Like the back of your hand, if you will. <laughs> the success of the this movie is just that it, it kind of gives something a little bit fresh to the story while kind of doing... It's both kind of a version of A Christmas Carol... And then it's also about the making of it. Because what it does is it takes aspects of his biography and it makes Dickens undergo a bit of like um, a reappraisal of his relations to family, of his past, um, all around the lead up to Christmas because he actually published it like right before Christmas. It was like under a crunch to get it out there. And then there's a weird fantasy aspect where we get the pleasure of seeing... um, Christopher Plummer play play uh, Scrooge, but 
But, like, as a Scrooge who interacts with Dickens and is sort of, like, undercutting him and, like, saying snide remarks to him and stuff. So it's the kind of movie that, like, I just found um, a little bit delightful, even though it's not amazing. And I'm not going to recommend it so strongly, but it's definitely worth checking out if you're, you know, if you've seen all the versions of A Christmas Carol, but you just want to have that story again, worth checking out. And it is true that Dickens publishing A Christmas Carol revitalized the celebration of Christmas in England. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big, that's a big sort of, um, I guess, thread within the movie is how like people are like, why would you write a Christmas book? Like Christmas is just this minor holiday. And it's also, he also self-published A uh, Christmas Carol. So he actually went not with his regular publisher and and uh, did it himself, found the author, and put it out there. And then it was like a smashing success at the last minute. So it has a weird, its publishing history itself is a little bit of uh, an interesting story too. Yeah, I'm always watching things like The Grinch or Charlie Brown Christmas. Or I watched the Rankin and Bass ones this past week. <laughs> might write something on that that might be up by the time this comes out. The... But I've also been trying to watch a bit more unconventional ones just to break up the rhythm. Um, These movies aren't probably Christmas movies, technically, but I did watch Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence the other week, and I watched Black Narcissus, like, back-to-back nights, and they both have key Christmas elements to them. Um, Not necessarily movies I would recommend that families watch, but... Merry Christmas, Sister Lawrence is a little bit more of an actually dealing with Christmas themes, especially the idea of forgiveness and and what's that's born out of like the sacrifice. But again, those aren't really like one to one things. I'm hoping to revisit The Lion in Winter before Christmas because I Mm -hmm. think that's not only one of the great movie casts of all time where it's Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine, Peter O'Toole as Henry II, reprising the role after he played in Beckett. And then Anthony Hopkins making his screen debut as Richard the Lionheart. And then you also get Timothy Dalton as Philip II of France. And who's the actor from Excalibur who plays Arthur? He plays uh, John, Prince John. And then there's also a couple other good British stage actors in there. But it's basically they all get holed up in Eleanor's castle for Christmas where Henry has her imprisoned. And they all kind of plot... And constantly, as one, but, you know, they, they have a dinner together and get annoyed at each other. And then mom and one son goes off and plots this, while dad and another son go off and plot this. And it's all about how kind of Christmas is not only the time when you get stuck together with your family, you get to hash out those family issues, but it's also the best time for plotting <laughs> within families of, like, if I need to jockey up my position in the family, Christmas is my best opportunity to do it. And so I just love the fact that for a movie that's all about kind of these political machinations within this very powerful family, it actually gets at all these interesting Christmas things too, in a secular sense and in a like historical medieval sense. <laughs> I do what's, in, do what's interesting on that, on that note. Um, I finished the most recent season of the crown and the, the very ending of the last episode is a Christmas scene with like Diana showing up at Christmas with the family. And you know, I won't I won't get into it all, but basically again you see this like Christmas as both, you know, the time when a family can come together, but also by having everyone there, it affords a a moment for like that the 
the dynamics to take place. And, you know, magnified when it's a royal family with all the, the politics. At the Crown had a really great Christmas uh, scene in the first season, too, right? It was the first episode. With George. Oh, was that the first episode? Yeah. Yeah, when George sings with the, uh, the locals. I think there's also a certain satisfaction maybe in watching some Christmas movies this year where you're watching families gather and, you know, it's going to be a year when that's not going to happen. So um, a little bit of vicarious joy, even if it's plotting to overthrow Britain or, you know, what have you. <laughs> Can we end with a, a quick, like, just the idea of, is it a Christmas movie? Um <laughs> Can I put some movies to you two, and then sure. you can tell me if you think it's a Christmas movie? Okay. Sure. Okay. Because these are ones that people tell me. So, Aaron, Die Hard? Christmas yes. movie. Yes. Anders? Definitely a Christmas movie. Christmas okay. movie. Yes. I wrote about so, it last year. Sound of Music. No. It, you can watch it at Christmas, and it's appropriate, but it doesn't take up enough of the film to make it a Christmas movie. I put Sound of Music kind of like the first Harry Potter, where there's memorable Christmas scenes in it, but it's not necessarily a Christmas movie, even though yeah. it's about family. And I like to watch it around Christmas, but... And I think it was the fact that it was always often broadcast yeah. during Christmas that makes yeah. it um, for people. Um, okay, uh, Mary Poppins. It's been too long. I can't remember. Yeah. I, I need to watch it I again. I would. Yeah. But it, it wouldn't come to mind for me as a, a Christmas movie, but Aaron, Lethal Weapon. Well, uh, yes, that too. I, I know, also I wrote I on that. People have to understand that these Christmas, there's a reason these action movies in the 80s are set around Christmas when they're about reestablishing family dynamics. Exactly. That's literally the meaning of Christmas to secular audiences. Therefore, it is absolutely essential to those movies that they're Christmas movies. It's not just like, oh, it's a gimmick. Anyways, that kind of wraps it up, I think, for our inaugural roundtable podcast episode of the Three Brothers Filmcast. Um, just before we step away, I'm going to give you a brief flash forward of what's to come. Now, it might be a little bit odd that we're having our first episode at the end of a calendar year, but it kind of makes sense, especially as 2021 marks the 10th anniversary of Three Brothers Film. Also, just to look forward in the new year, we'll probably get together and talk about movie theaters and whether they'll be back post-COVID, or maybe they won't be because Warner Brothers seems to be fine with killing them and putting all their movies on HBO Max. So that's just another topic that might show up in an episode in the near future. So just uh, share, like, subscribe, let us know if you like the episode. And you can check out Mank on Netflix, which I assume you all have a subscription. If not, I'm sure there's ways you can find it. No, I'm looking forward to having these roundtables uh, discussions on the podcast. I think it's it's fun. I think, you know, tell us if you enjoy it because I think you've read us all interacting with each other in writing and so you know it'll be interesting to compare the dynamic between the written roundtables and the podcast yeah exactly definitely let us know because often the feedback we get whether it's from people we know or people who become familiar with our work and only know us through kind of our online film writing they tend to say that the roundtables are the things they enjoy the most because it's where our voices come out in contrast to each other and I feel like it's a natural extension of that for us to actually talk about it in an actual roundtable where our, our voices are heard, not just read on the page. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Three Brothers Filmcast. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>